Chemical City Double Reeds is a full-service double reed shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Reed Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH, all caps, no spaces. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at chemicalcityreads.com. Hey, oboists. Have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes F. Loray of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox products. For a current listing of Oboe Chicago's selection, please visit www.oboechicago.com. For a credit of $100 toward shipping, mention Double Read Dish when you call or email Shauna. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. At least it's summer for me. I just got back from a wonderful vacation of eating myself stupid <laughs> in the, in Seattle. How has the end of the semester been for you? I'm almost there. We had juries yesterday and I am double checking all of my grade inputs today and then I'm done. Well, you know, I was laughing because I was done before you, but come fall when I have to go back a week before you do, you're going to have the upper hand and you're going to laugh, laugh, laugh that you have longer vacation than me. <laughs> That's true, but I think I would rather do it your way. Rather get it done with. Yeah. And I'm always excited to go back. I love the start of a new year and I love like buying school supplies that I don't need. Like, mm-hmm. wow, I have pens. pens. I have pens all over every nook and cranny and centimeter of my home and office, but I should probably buy a new pack of pens. Another planner that I'll only use for two months. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things I'm most excited about, actually, is I finished recording my album. So awesome. It was way more intense than I even anticipated. I was wild. Like, holy moly. I'm... and Benjamin assures me it gets easier with every time you do it so I'm trying to trust in him but um it's a really intense relationship you have with repertoire that you record and I'm so excited to have new stuff on my music stand I'm excited to practice I'm super into the bassoon I was actually telling you that but um I am so sick of that repertoire that I recorded. I'm like fatigued. I'm just like, oh, let's get this over with. And I've got all this new stuff to learn. I'm super excited. Didn't you, you texted me that after one of your recording sessions, you had to go perform like at an elementary school. 
Yes. Yeah. The, <laughs> the Coeur d'Alene Res had this fundraiser and they asked local native musicians to come and play because they were trying to fundraise for, um, I kept calling it an urn, <laughs> which it is not an urn, but like how you fire the thing you fire pottery with so they can actually kiln? make, yeah, a kiln. I kept okay. being, I actually asked the lady who organized it. I go, have we raised enough money to get the urn? And she was like, what? The- <laughs> Earn. Like, nobody's dead so <laughs> we don't need an urn at the elementary school yes yeah, so i recorded and edited from noon to five and then drove to plumber idaho and uh played my dance suite uh after the recorder duet and before a local powwow drum and it was <laughs> It was awesome. I got a new uh, painting for my office by some of the students on the in the Aww. silent auction. So that was cute. Yes, so we have all sorts of gigs, and um, yeah, the next big project, at least recording project, is you and me are going to record these consortium pieces. God, I'm so excited! This episode's being released on May 15th, so if you are in the early access levels of consortium membership those pieces should be waiting in your email like now oh my god they're so cool too (laughs) well yeah we got a sneak peek so we're already pretty familiar with these pieces let's talk a little bit about what people can expect especially if they're not in those early access tiers like what are they in store for are you ready for some sharp key signatures Oh, don't scare them away. No, it's, <laughs> it's all friendly key signatures. It's F and C and <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> no, the pieces are really cool. We just got to look at them. When was it? Last week? Yeah, they started kind of trickling in. There was a deadline, of course, for the composers to submit, and we had to get the mailing lists and all that type of stuff. So they they trickled in slowly. Mm-hmm. Um, Bryn Solomon's piece. Yeah, that was the first one I looked at. Dances for Tangible Water um, is super cool. It's two movements, uh, Glacier Snow and Mountain Stream. And then movement to all rivers run to the sea, yet the sea is never full. Total running time around 12 minutes. And um, you were telling me something I wouldn't have necessarily known or at least had to Google. There are um, some Jewish musical liturgical elements infused into this piece. Talk to us about that. Okay, so there is a a trope system where if uh, you are Jewish and went through a bar bat mitzvah, you learn how to read Torah trup. And it's basically like a chanting um, melody for every sentence in the Torah and the half Torah. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Bryn has taken that idea and is inspired, uh, let's see, it's in movement two, there's a transcription of Kohelet 1-7 in the Trump system that Bryn has been taught. So it's going to be like a like a similar feel to the chanting of the Torah Trump. So I, of course, gave an amazing bat mitzvah <laughs> when I was 12. Standing room only, a standing ovation. Um, I read the entire thing 
from memory. So I'm going to put my own little spin on it, I think. That's phenomenal. I love that. And I love the... Um, we can't, we weren't anticipating like the personal connection to these pieces, but that's like such a special element for you. Yeah. It's super, super cool. And I'm really excited to, you know, get in there and make that sound like, like this thing that I know. Yeah. This yeah. Ancient thing that I know how to do. <laughs> yeah. Similarly, uh, Connor Chi's trio for oboe, bassoon, and piano, it's a single movement. And um, in it, he gives brief notes. Um, this piece was inspired in part by traditional Diné or Navajo music. At a surface level, the music perhaps does not sound inherently indigenous. However, the rhythmic, melodic, and metric underpinnings were influenced by elements of traditional Diné songs. Additionally, the piece is based on the interval of a fourth to pay respect to the Diné belief and the sacred nature of the number four. And that's something that is uh, kind of a through line through um, a lot of Native North American indigenous cultures is the sacred nature of number four. Uh, oh. The medicine wheel is based off the number four, the four sacred colors, red, yellow, black, and white, the four directions, north, south, east, and west, um, all of that type of stuff. And that um, when you look at the medicine wheel, everything has to be in balance. And that's a nature on kind of the collaborative uh, view of life and mutual respect and um, relationship. And so I was like, oh, yes. Although I did get a little bit of like PTSD to all that Via Lobos fourths. <laughs> I was like, oh, no, fourths. We love <laughs> thirds. Come on, <laughs> give us thirds. Uh, but no, really, really beautiful piece. And I love all of Connor's music. I've commissioned other pieces personally from Connor. And I just am such a super fan of his music. I'm so excited to have a piece for uh, oboe, bassoon, and piano for sure. Yeah, me too. And um Let's see, Kate Pukinskis wrote a piece for oboe bassoon and alto voice, right? It well, it's it's supposed to be, she was saying how like it's supposed to be a really accessible voice part that like, like most you don't have to be do. a singer necessarily. Yes. So she specifies treble voice, but I did inquire about uh non-treble voice, and she was like, Yeah, sure. Like, I think it's supposed to be a really kind of all-purpose voice, flexible voice part. Yeah. So it wouldn't have to be like a professional singer who would be involved Mm -hmm. in the piece. It could be just somebody who likes to sing, which Mm -hmm. is really cool. Um, And the poetry that it's based off of makes me cry every time I read it. Every single time. Shout out to Kendra Leonard, who wrote this incredible poem, uh, which is inspired by your and my friendship. Yeah, we talked about this in the live with Kate, but in case you listeners didn't um, catch that, this piece uh, originally wasn't intended to be a part of the consortium. It was going to be a personal commission. Um, We were actually applying for the IDRS grant and then COVID kind of messed with that. And so we had decided to move forward with the consortium and we're like, oh, obviously we have to include this piece. Um, But it had already been, begun the conception process and we'd already had several meetings with Kate and Kendra about this piece and we all felt really uh convicted that our 
friendship and then also our philosophy should be imbibed into the piece. And so you really hear that in the poem and it makes it really personal, kind of like an ode to friendship. I would love to see Double Read Friends playing this piece together and for it to, you know, have, again, like we were saying with Connor's piece, like a relational significance to it for sure. That's what we're learning through this process and like through the podcast is that everything is about relationships. Yeah. I mean, can we talk real quick before we get to Mason's piece about the success of this consortium? Not to be like pat pat, but over 100 members total. Yeah. A hun- over a hundred people have joined this consortium. And that is so amazing to see you guys just like, yeah, we want to be a part of the process of creating new works for the oboe and bassoon by these exciting new composers. Yeah. I feel like we won. Like, I feel like the commentary was you have to have big money. You have to have a higher ed job and you have to be part of an exclusive by invite only club in order to create significant new works. And it's not true. I think, yeah, I feel like we collectively us hundred plus went, no, I've got 20 bucks to chip in and I want to be a part of this process. Mm-hmm. And there were so many people who joined at the $25 level. Like I remember back a year ago when we started this thing, like you and I were so excited every time we got a $25 level consortium member. Cause we yeah. were like, that's a person who wouldn't have had access previously. Absolutely. And I hope we can all, again, not to be like, <laughs> but uh, I hope we can all learn from that. Like, I hope this is a new model going forward. Like I hope yeah. we're not an outlier. Like, yeah. please copy this. Please use this model and like, let's have every single consortium be like this and let's just create, create, create. Cause yeah, I love the subversive nature of us just like, um, no, there is not a $300 entry point. Sorry. Do you want to hear a relevant and wild story? Yes. So eight, nine years ago, I was visiting my friend, non-musician, Bestie, who lives uh, outside of Boston. I was visiting her and her husband. Kava. Kava, (laughs) my love. And uh, they're both very educated, very brilliant, wonderful people. And I remember we were out doing something and I was like talking about like composers that I liked that were alive and her husband who is again, a brilliant, very educated person said, oh, I didn't realize that people are still writing classical music. <laughs> and I was like, what? And he was like, yeah, I, did. I thought that was like in the past. And I was like, oh no, people are doing it. Like, and so what we're doing with the consortium and like anytime somebody writes music today is invigorating our art form. Yeah, absolutely. Keeping us relevant. Yeah, keeping us relevant and dusting the cobwebs off and making it something really cool and interesting and contemporary and for right now. Well, speaking, we can't forget to shout out Mason's piece, Pong. Oh, yeah. Which is inspired by the Atari game, Pong. You know, I don't think I ever played this game. It's like you're on one side and then you're on the other And so it's kind of like tennis, but a video game. And so like, you'll send the ball over 
and then the other one will have to move oh, and you have up to move or the down bar? to kick it back and forth. Do you have to move the bar? Yes, exactly. Kept, okay. Got yeah. It. And so that's why when you look at her score, it's all these figures being passed back and forth. It's like the oboe and the bassoon are playing pong. It's musical that's pong. So cool. <laughs> I said. <laughs> so we got video games. We've got bot mitzvah application. We've got okay. the sacred number four. We've got friendship. And we all did it together. Thank you so much for being a part of our Conthorpe. Oh, we love you best. guys so much. Ugly Duckling Oboes is dedicated to the development of young oboe players. They provide quality handmade oboe reads, private lessons, and high-quality oboe sales, rentals, and consignments. The oboes that they rent are conservatory mechanism oboes that include the left-hand F key and low B-flat key. All are maintained by oboe-specific technicians. In-person lessons are available as well as virtual lessons for students who live outside the geographic area or have transportation and scheduling challenges. They also offer online college audition coaching for high school juniors and seniors who plan to audition to be music majors. Visit UglyDucklingOboes.com for more details on how you can set up yourself for success and sign up for their newsletter. That's UglyDucklingOboes.com. Consider buying your processed oboe and bassoon cane from those friendly folks over at Barton Cane. Processed with care and precision for your everyday reed-making needs. Take the pain and injury out of reed-making by letting Barton Cane do the hard, repetitive, boring stuff. Free up time for practicing happy hours, hikes, baking, and spending time with friends and family. Barton Cane, here for you. Visit www.bartonkane.com. We are delighted to welcome to Double Read Dish Cassie Pilgrim, Principal Oboe of the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra. Welcome. Hi. It's so nice to be here. Can we get to know you by uh, hearing how you came to play the oboe? How'd you get started? Sure. Um, I started when I was 10 years old, so I've been playing for about 15 years now, which is kind of wild, but um, I just started in fifth grade. You know, it's like we have to pick up a band instrument, and both my parents and my older brother had played instruments at least at some point growing up, so, but I was kind of a weird, dorky kid. I feel like maybe other oboe players can relate to that, just wanting to pick something that's different and (laughs) Quirky. I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, yeah, of course. I'm totally normal. <laughs> uh, I remember, I just remember, maybe it's, maybe this is a kind of a negative character trait, but I'm just kind of stubborn. And, but um, I think also players need a little bit of that too. And so when they told me that I should play clarinet or flute or something and said that was easier, I was like, no, 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 I can, I'll do what I want. Um, and it's funny because then, you know, you go and you try the little, beginner oboe and the the dinky little reed and I was like this is so easy what are they talking about and now 15 years later I'm like no that's so hard (laughs) they were right but I'm glad that I didn't listen to them because you know I'm very grateful to, to be doing what I'm doing I would love to know more about how you made the decision to become a professional oboist and kind of take us through your educational journey through being a professional sure yeah, it's just like, it's funny, I'm thinking about, 
um, I, I always knew what I wanted to do for a lot longer than seemingly like my non-musician friends in high school. You know, it's like, it seems like I went to college and I already knew that I, was, I wanted to study music and um, other people pick their major after they went to college. And so that was kind of different, but tracing it back exactly how far I think um, I always had the passion from the, the get-go. I would be practicing like 45 minutes a day or something, even when I, I just started or even more. And no one really had to tell me to practice. Maybe my parents wouldn't if I was like, you know, procrastinating, but um, I just liked the, it was fun to me. I liked playing little songs and I would bring them into band class and kind of like show off the little etude that I learned and other people were annoyed by it, but I just, I was really excited (laughs) and um, I didn't really have any other artistic outlets like that, that I could really hone in on. And so I just was, I was happy to to do it and to get good at something. And, um, and so I had lessons and everything right away, but then, you know, as, as I kept making progress, it just, I wanted to keep being a high achiever. And so, you know, doing youth orchestra and, and auditions and all that kind of thing. And I think by the time I was a freshman in high school and doing Atlanta Symphony Youth Orchestra, I I don't know if this was the singular moment or just around that time, but I remember doing, we played um, Mahler's First Symphony, or just a movement from it, and I remember playing it. And I had so much fun because I would also go to orchestra rehearsals every every weekend and see my friends. So it was like, oh, I can play music it's really fun I can see my friends all the time being in an orchestra must be so fun like I want to do this so I think something like that where I realized that playing in orchestra it's it's like a fun collaborative thing um that almost like seemingly I don't even have to think about once you're in the zone and performing it's more just about being there in the moment versus like mm-hmm. if I were a writer or something that I, I used to be able to I used to want to be a writer and author and stuff, but I don't know. I just liked, I liked the expression and the freedom of it. And yeah, I never really looked back from there. Was your, um, so you sound like an extremely motivated uh, person and has always (laughs) been, it sounds like, what? (laughs) Of course I am telling you only the positive stuff, (laughs) not all my lazy stuff, but yeah. Um, Was it, were you always like, intrinsically motivated is that something that just naturally lives inside you or was there some amount of external motivation as well I think there's there's both I'm I'm not ashamed to admit that I do better with external motivation you know Mm -hmm. with lessons and stuff and it's like do I want to be embarrassed when I go in or do I want to do well and I think Mm -hmm. that's that's normal um Mm -hmm. and that's why you know I appreciated I almost miss being in college sometimes with like having that motivation to get me to practice and and learn stuff. But um, I also just enjoy, I think it's sort of like the more effort you put into it, the more, the more you reap, the more you sow. So um, the more you scrape, the more insane I go or I don't know, whatever, but it's like, it's a, so I know there is like a people pleasing element of it that I feel like, you know, I'll, I'll use that to my advantage. Um, But also it's like, I enjoy playing music. So the better you are, the more things you can kind of do the music, the more music you can play. So that's kind of a motivation. Can we hear about um, maybe uh, 
your training and educational journey, like kind of walk us through where you went to school and your experiences. Maybe some people will be like, oh, um, this teacher emphasized this thing or, you know, talk about how different environments were formative in different ways for them. Sure. Yeah. Um, see, I'm very lucky. I, I all my my major teachers and other people that I've studied with, and, um, I just I feel like I've had a kind of a consistent education and, and lineage in that um, my my most major teacher growing up in Atlanta was Elizabeth Cook Tashon and I started studying with her um, when I was 12 and I remember I was kind of resistant at first because I had had another teacher that I was loyal to and my parents kind of wanted the best for me so they, they sought out Liz who's principal in Atlanta so they were like they told me oh you're gonna have a lesson with you're gonna start studying with her and I was like well she'll never be my teacher because <laughs> I, I am a good and of course, like, it's ridiculous because then, um, I yeah, love, and you like, were 12, like, what are you? You're know? 12. Yeah. I just, I know, <laughs> but she was such a great influence to me and she still is. And so I'm really grateful for her. And then I knew that she had gone to the Curtis Institute of Music and she would talk about her teacher. And, um, I remember actually, I remember being in high school and my freshman year in high school and I, we would have laptops and I would just not be paying attention in class. Cause I'd be like on the Curtis website, looking at course materials and I was just like kind of daydreaming like huh and I didn't know that a couple of years later that I would be going there so that was kind of I forgot that that happened um so I was you know always kind of interested in kind of climbing that family tree in a way because <laughs> it just seemed like oh I like what Liz is thinking like might as well go to the same source and so um I ended up doing the same thing I went to Curtis and um, I auditioned after in my junior year of high school. So I left high school early, but then I went four years at Curtis, studied with Richard Woodhams. And then afterwards, I did my artist diploma at Oberlin um, with Robert Walters, who also studied at Curtis with Mr. Woodhams. So it's sort of like I've never really had that much um, conflicting education. It's all sort of from the same vein. But of course, every teacher brings something different. And I got so much from, from each mentor. So, um, and I like kind of doing the same thing and the lessons that I teach and what I do, how I approach things, kind of just like the artistry and um, concepts that I learned um, really resonate with me still. So, yeah, it's kind of cool to trace back. (laughs) It seems like it would be really formative and significant for a 12-year-old aspiring professional oboist to see... Liz Cook to shown a young woman as the principal mm-hmm. oboist of a major oh, yeah. your local major orchestra was that like do you think that that was something that influenced you and like allowed you to envision yourself in a successful role yes totally um uh I think you've have you met with Liz before or done the oh yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah she's not, I mean she's just so down to earth and and approachable and such like a kind person and so I think for me being that young and um I mean she was younger than I am now when I started studying with her which is kind of wild to think about but um so in a way it's sort of like she was just always very encouraging and I learned so much but it was never like me teacher you student like kind Mm -hmm. of um that strict dynamic that sometimes like when you're that young it's motivating in a way, but I, I liked having that 
um, it just, she was nothing but encouraging to me and I kind of took it and ran with it. And mm-hmm. so, um, of course seeing her then going to concerts and seeing her absolutely, you know, like nail it and be mm-hmm. so cool. And so like, that was kind of formative. And I think I take that with me now where I can do my job, but also I like to be approachable with students and, mm-hmm. um, you know, just sort of like show them, um, you can have fun and also like be top tier at the same time. But yeah, um, yeah, it's, it's just super beautiful and poetic to see that you have achieved such a huge milestone Mm -hmm. um, at such a young age, being principal of a major American orchestra. And you studied with the person who did the same thing. I mean, (laughs) it's just so beautiful to see. (laughs) It's actually kind of, it's, it's kind of wild. Like, um, I don't know, there wasn't, I didn't really feel that pressure to like follow in my teacher's footsteps, but it kind of in a way just happened by coincidence where um, I, my teacher, Richard Bodoms got his first job in St. Louis. I think when he was like 19 and Liz won her job in Atlanta when she was 20 or 21. And I won my job when she was, when I was 21 and um, my predecessor, Catherine Greenbank, Kathy Greenbank and SPCO, she got her job when she was 21 too. So I don't know what this, this ages, but <laughs> you know, there's a certain fearlessness about being in your late teens, early twenties. Maybe like, yeah, I got nothing to lose, and then all yeah, of a sudden, exactly. Oh my god, I have to play a job now. Um, yeah, you don't know what not, you're risking. Yeah. <laughs> not that, not that you know, you that's it's kind of morally neutral. It's neither better or or worse than getting a job later. Um, and sometimes there's something to be said for like having more experience and versus learning on the fly, but. Um, yeah, I'm very grateful. And I, I always saw myself like, that's what I wanted to do and play in orchestra and everything. So um, there's a lot of upward momentum. And, and now with the pandemic in the past couple of years, it's, it's been a little bit interesting to kind of start my career off this way with kind of a lot of stop and start and um, never really finishing like a full season yet <laughs> to, to date, which has kind of been strange, but wow. it's all been good. Can't complain. You mentioned Kathy Greenbank, and uh, so I have a two-part question. Um, Galit and I were talking, and at the 2016 IDRS conference, Kathy gave a master class, and there was a young woman from Georgia who played spectacularly. We're thinking that was you. Is that you? It was It was. Me. Yay, we were Wait. there. <laughs> what? Oh, so you didn't know that that was me? You are just like, you're wondering if it was. No, I looked at your <laughs> picture, so and I read your bio, and I said, do you remember that student at the IDRS master, master class, Kathy's no master way. class, and she played so phenomenal and everyone yeah. was just like oh, oh my this god this so person nice. is so good yeah everyone's so nice. like she's thank gonna you. go so far yeah <laughs> oh my gosh oh that's that's very kind thank you <laughs> it's funny I, I mean I had obviously looking back it's like I had no idea and I see like I think that someone took a picture of me standing next to Kathy and it's like that's so wild because I think just a couple years later I took my audition um mm-hmm. and yeah so that was me <laughs> and that hadn't been the first time I met Kathy before I met her once before that point when after my freshman year in Curtis I went to spend several weeks with Ginger Ramsey down in, mm-hmm. in Georgia because um you know she just lives a couple hours north of me and so I, I actually I helped I learned how to help make keys and stuff and burn my fingers for an entire okay. summer but um I actually am playing on an oboe now that 
that I helped make the keys on for. So that's kind of exciting. But um, Kathy and her wife, Laura, came down for like, I think, gouger work or something or oboe adjustments while I was there. And so like, um, I met her then. And we ended up shaving like matted fur off some random stray dog that they had found that was like kind of my first experience with Kathy like I was like well it's Kathy Greenbank like I listen to her recordings all the time and here I am shaving like ticks and matted fur off a small dog with her and so so she's also an awesome person and again very kind um but yeah I had no idea it's just funny to think about like the progression of events and everything yeah it's very serendipitous <laughs> Um, yeah. And it's, it's so special. Kind of like Galit was talking about with you and Liz that, you know, this chair was passed to, from a woman to a woman. That's, that's really mm. special. Um, yeah. so can we hear, and this answer may be long, that's totally fine. Um, kind of your journey to the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra. Can we hear kind of your, you know, audition path and how you got to where you are today? Sure. Yeah, before I took my audition in 2018, I had only taken one more audition at that point. Um, And so I was kind of green on the scene. And I was kind of, I don't know, apprehensive about auditions for a while. Um, I never felt ready. And while I was in undergrad, I just truthfully, like, never really prepared properly. I think I just kind of relied on, like, I'm talented. I can go in there and build they'll hear my musicianship, even if I mess up over it, you know, I just, I was a little bit foolhardy about that, but um, I was also young and you do learn a lot from audition experience, like whether you win or not. Um, But then I went to Oberlin and I studied with Robert Walters, who knows so much about audition prep. And he really taught me so much about routine and like the whole journey of it, the process. So I really dove straight into that. And I was really grateful um, in the artist diploma program at Oberlin at the time I didn't have any really any classes or really anything to do besides just like um, Mr. Walters called it you know use the school as a laboratory to like launch yourself and that's kind of what I did it's like every resource that was there and going to the library or like taking um, reserving halls to do mock auditions and driving and playing for all these people in the area like really just doing as much as I can, um, trying everything. And it really paid off for me, I think, because then when the audition rolled around and um, I, it was a job that I really wanted. Like I, I knew of the orchestra for a long time and listened and, and Kathy's recordings were very formative to me. Like I always had kind of her concept and sound in my ear, but I try not to think about it too much going into it. Like I really want this job because I did. Um, but I think with the level of preparation that I achieved, um, I think that's kind of a goal, you know, it's like to go in there and having the mindset of like, no one has done more than I have for this audition, whether it's true or not. But if you have that feeling, um, not in kind of like a judgmental way of other people in preparation, but just knowing like I could not have done more than this and I doubt anybody else has, um, then that's like a certain type of confidence that, um, it's very transparent behind the screen as well. As someone who's now sat on a panel, I can really tell like if someone has really gone through the gauntlet and even if they miss a note, it doesn't really matter because you can see that they have a clear understanding and a vision of of what they're doing. So that's kind of what I wanted to pull off. And um, it all just kind of went from there. I I had played with SPCO 
once before. I just, I subbed a few months before the audition. So um, I had the benefit, at a benefit of being on that hall before at least once. And I know that everybody has that uh, opportunity, but, um, you know, I can recommend it if, if anyone else, even just like passing by or being in the city, same city before, like have some kind of familiarity takes away kind of like the scariness of it all. Um, but I had the audition and then a few months later I had my trial, which was three weeks in January in Minnesota <laughs> at one point um, with the polar vortex, it being, I think with the wind chill, it was like negative 60 degrees, um, which I was like, why, do, why am I doing this again? Um, but I made it through. <laughs> and, um, and then I started later that year in September for the first season in 2019. So, um, my follow-up question is how do you make a read in negative 60 degree polar? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't know. I guess you just say a prayer and think about it too much. Yeah. There's like, I don't know. There's, there's a certain (laughs) for anyone on the, on the coasts or anyone who doesn't live in the Midwest, like I know remaking is difficult everywhere. And, um, we all like have that shared bond, but just, you know, have a little compassion for us living in, in Minnesota sometimes because <laughs> between like, um, you know, especially now in the spring, it's actually almost easier when it's always cold. Cause then your reeds are kind of more working from day to day, but in the spring, it's like, it'll be 60 degrees and then it'll be snowing the next day and then rainstorming. And so it's kind of like, what can you do? besides <laughs> You just try your best. You, know? um, you do get used to it. I think. And I think there's a lot, you can do to help. I have like a heated case and um, humidified reed case and stuff like that. Just to have any kind of consistency is good, but yeah, you just try your best. (laughs) Um, Would you be willing to share preparation techniques that you use to get ready for the audition that ended up really working for you? Yeah. Um, Yeah, I did. Like I said, I went from maybe before that audition, not really, you know, I would practice a lot and and try and do some mock auditions, but um, there's still so much uncertainty in my preparation that uh, as opposed to when I was preparing for my SPC audition, I really, um, I don't know. I don't know if I've ever worked that hard for anything (laughs) besides that. Cause I, again, I had kind of the luxury of not having to go to classes or like another job that I had to deal with. So um, that was a privilege where I could just spend every day, like, okay, this is what I'm doing for a couple of months. But, um, and a lot of my wisdom and, and learned practices I got from my teacher, Mr. Walters, but basically I can't say enough. I think like I must've played maybe 20 or more mock auditions mm. or, you know, several and just every day to do as much as you can to really like learn about the music and um, intense score study and listening and, something that I, I did, which I didn't even really plan to do, but looking back, it was kind of a cool side effect as, um, I, you know, I, I lived in Oberlin, but then I would go to Cleveland a lot for lessons. And that drive was about 45 minutes, which is coincidentally the same amount of time it would take for me to run through the entire list. And so I would always play mock audition. I would record it on my phone. And then maybe that same day or the next day, I would listen to it on the drive back and forth. And then, you know, I'd listen to the whole mock audition and see what I needed to improve, then play like another one right after that. And every time, just like, even if you improve one or two things, it's just the, 
the journey and not about trying to make huge leaps and bounds, but Mm. that kind of like steady progress and just always kind of being objective, like listening to yourself all the time and just trying to improve something that really, I think I learned so much from that. Um, So I can't emphasize like you should just record yourself as much as possible and, you know, maybe leave a day afterwards, especially if you're not feeling good about it. So you can be objective because I know how painful it is to listen back and it's, it's not as good as you want it to be. And almost like you want to stop doing it, but to do that and, and play for all sorts of people, it doesn't even have to be in a student teacher lesson. It could be your colleagues or whatever, just, just to get the experience of that. And also that when I went behind the screen for my audition, I felt like, you know, it, it's kind of high pressure, but it shouldn't be any different than all those other times that I did it. And I know it's not necessarily a hot take, like just do mock auditions, but I don't think a lot of times, I don't think people do enough. Like maybe they've done like four or five or something, but I'm like, do as much as you possibly can, not Mm -hmm. to the point where you're beating a dead horse with a stick, but just so it's like, you know, um, you, it's just like with any kind of little exercise. So you're not all of a sudden like you jog five miles and then you try to do a marathon like the next day. So it's kind of about that, that progress to that point. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know. I found recordings that really resonated with me, but I think also I tried to embody each piece, each excerpt as close as you can. I think that's the difficult part in an audition is when you have to just kind of rattle off five excerpts and um, embody each character like pretty, pretty quickly within a few seconds between each excerpt. Um, so to that, I say also be able to like instantly from the, from the beginning of the note, let the music already be present and start rather than um, sometimes, you know, you can, you play a measure and it takes about a measure or two for it to kick in. Mm-hmm. And that's also very transparent from behind the screen um, to the panel. So um, even when you're on stage, it can feel like hours if you're not, playing anything because it's just silent but it really doesn't take that long you know you can take the extra five ten seconds to like really think about the tempo and the accompaniment and everything just to get in the zone because um, I didn't have any experience like on the job but you can simulate experience (laughs) with your preparation and your understanding of um, you know your point of view so um, you know to feel like you've already been playing it for 10 years on the job, even though you know that you haven't um, just that confidence and doing any measures necessary to convey that confidence. And that's different for everybody, but um, not, not kind of being cocky or bravado or anything like that, but just sort of like a comfort. Um, and that's kind of the biggest thing. Cause I think before that point, I was always just kind of like, eh, it's the luck of the draw. And there is some of that, but um I, I had to learn how to work, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's something that every musician and everybody, every person in the world kind of has to learn how to yeah. combine their, their talent and also their work ethic to like produce something. Um, yeah. I think that's, <laughs> I can't I really it. think of anything else. Mm. I love it. Yeah. You've already uh, kind of referenced this and so much of what you've said is already applicable, but um, now that you've been on the other side of the screen and Mm -hmm. are hiring people, can you talk to us about maybe um, what has been learned in that process and and tips and tricks that you've 
gained from having that experience mm-hmm. yeah um yeah well first of all the biggest thing that I learned I think from sitting behind the screen was like sheesh I'm lucky that I got a job <laughs> and I feel very grateful for that you know because it's just the reality is with auditions it is just a hard process it's like to please everybody is very difficult and nearly impossible sometimes it's impossible to please everyone like sometimes the majority will do um but you know and for SBCO our process is a little bit different because we don't have um you know a music director or conductor or anything which sometimes they have kind of a heavy vote so we do have a panel and everyone's opinion is kind of equal um and you know we do have sort of like a majority rules when it comes to advancing people to next rounds and and whatnot but that does make it difficult um and I think, of course, every orchestra is different looking for something else. Because I think, uh, from what I can tell from sitting behind a screen, is you can, there's objectively people that are good at their instrument, like good musicians, but sometimes just subjectively not a good fit for what we're doing. And that's like kind of, again, morally neutral. <laughs> and everybody, I think, understands that if you go to an audition and people say this, but it is true. It's like, you're good. It's just like, they're looking for something else. And I think, we can have to learn to accept that to a certain degree, but the things that are objectively good um, from behind the screen, I think is just people that have a point of view. And sometimes I'm not going to agree with everything that they're doing, but if it, I can tell that they have prepared that and they understand the music in their own way. And um, especially if I agree with what they're doing, then it's something that really is immediately obvious, I think, versus somebody that is either just trying to not mess up, um, maybe almost like tentative or mm-hmm. playing it to just play it accurately, but without any sort of like risk involved. <laughs> and I mean, I don't know. It's just so minute when we're talking about the differences. It could be you hold this one note, not out of time, but just like, the most tiniest hair um, a little bit longer because that's where your expression is. You're like, this is going to be my moment this on this little note. And as opposed to kind of just blowing past it, because that's, that demonstrates like, Oh, you're doing this for a reason. And I think um, that stands out to us because in SPCO, everyone's kind of also a soloist. Um, And that's the kind of thing that differs from maybe other orchestras, or maybe they would just want someone to not, to be out of the limelight, maybe, you know, to just follow the rules. I don't know. But for us, um, what we're looking for is, is someone that has um, a point of view and ideas. And I think um, there's also sometimes there's a question that's thrown around. that's like, do you want people to be musical or like accurate? <laughs> and I've heard that before too. And I, I mean, I do think it's not mutually exclusive. Um, I understand where they're coming from where it's like, do you take, how much rubato do you take? Because are they going to be annoyed with that? Right. And to that, I just say, you know, everything obviously with moderate taste, you don't want to be moving mad all over the place and um, doing things really out of time and, and losing just the overall sense of the rhythm. But again, just little things that you can do where you keep a steady pulse, but playing around with it to demonstrate that you can do that and you understand like, you know, it takes a lot of control and practice to sound uncontrolled or, or um, improvisatory. So I don't, 
I don't even remember what the question was. I just been rambling. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I want to be my 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 advice to anyone taking auditions um, is just there's going to be so many people that are coming and playing, and of course you want to stand out, and you don't want to stand out by doing something like wrong, <laughs> um, but you just want to stand out by saying like I can play everything accurately, and I also here's a little something extra that I can do that I think you're going to want to listen to this. And, um, again, it can be something as small as like a little more vibrato on this note, a little extra time on this note or a particular articulation that you choose, but it's the little nuances that, um, really make a world of difference. So obviously stick with like, you have to have good time and intonation and tone quality and everything too. But beyond that, when it comes to standing out, um, it's just kind of the little things. So that's advice (laughs) i love to ask about reads so would you talk to us a bit about what's important to you as a read maker what do you look for in your reads and um how do you choose which read is going to be the one for you for a concert Mm. oh no (laughs) (laughs) this is kind of i'm in the throes of like it's kind of horror season in, in Minnesota making sure. me this happen. But, um, you know, you're still always going for the same basic principles, I think. And um, at some point, this point in the season, sometimes I'm just trying to survive. <laughs> but ideally, when I have time to really try to make a good read, then I just think comfort is the most important thing. And that means something different for everyone because some people find harder reads or lighter reads more comfortable. But I think I, I aim for something that will allow me to be flexible and not worried about what's going to happen. So comfort in terms of like, there's definitely a pitch floor. There's a stability about it. Um, but sometimes if it's too stable and doesn't really like, there's no leeway in either direction, then it's also uncomfortable because you feel like you're kind of in a brace or something like that. So I I know I kind of aim for reads tend to be maybe on the more the medium side rather than the heavy, not too light because I need something to blow against. Um, and just enough vibration where like I can achieve more nuances that way. I feel like if it's too hard um, or it's too light, then you kind of have to make up with it with your embouchure. I feel like so it doesn't kind of go wild. Um, but that's most important to me, especially in my job, sometimes we do have to get really quiet or we're like really, we like to do a lot of little things and, and quirks and nuances and stuff like that. So I definitely need something that I, um, I can manipulate a little bit with embouchure air if I need to. Um, but either way, no matter what I do, there's kind of a solid pitch center. Um, and that's something that I didn't really grasp either until maybe by the time I, I was a little bit older. Um and I think making reads, especially like an undergrad or whatever, it's uh, you have to kind of get worse before you can get better. Uh-huh. <laughs> Un- unlearn bad habits and learn new ones that you're bad at, at achieving yet and then kind of figuring it all out. So it all kind of coincided nicely by the time I took my SPC audition where I kind of finally managed to have a read that was like pretty stable yet vibrant enough where I could have a lot of variety. And it used to seem like an impossible thing. Like, you mean I can have vibration, but also like if I let go of it, it's not going to go crazy. (laughs) Um, And that's always what I try to go for. But 
um, especially here in the the winter, anything too hard and, and closed will just be impossible when it's like negative 10 degrees outside. So um, yeah, I'm a fan of vibration. I did study in Curtis and the whole Philly school and stuff like that too. So that's kind of what I know, but um, it's just whatever people can feel comfortable. And I don't think you should ever play on a read and if it like feel like you're having to blow into a brick or something like that, or like hold on to a straw and just because you feel like you're supposed to do either thing. I think it's like whatever helps you feel just confident <laughs> on it. Can you um, yeah. give us um, like a Philadelphia read style 101? Those who <laughs> may not know. <laughs> I'm scared to say anything. I, I just feel like there's always a certain level of vibration. I think people hear that like thin tip, short, thin tip. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's almost like people would like, who wouldn't agree? Nobody wants like an inch long, thick oboe reed tip either. But um, <laughs> I think that's, you know, I, that's what I was kind of saying is getting bad before I got better. It's like mm. I got to Curtis and then you hear the the words like short, thin tip, like maximum vibration, like a lot of, lot of vibration. And so then my reads were kind of wild and I would have to like, I learned how to play with the sort of like, people would try my reads and they're like, how are you doing this? And <laughs> just because I, I think my embouchure made up for a lot of it. Uh-huh. Um, and then I just had to learn how to balance it better. So I do think that's still a good principle, like a thin tip that will allow for lots of layers and vibrations. Mm. Um, and then also balanced enough where it can take those vibrations and, and channel them into like a controlled um, setting. But yeah, something like that where I think short thin tip and kind of allows you to have almost like um not a buzziness, but just layers to it rather than like a singular tone. Uh-huh. Um, and when I think about that, I just listen to, I think about like old any recordings of my teacher, Richard Woodhams, and it just seems like there's so many layers to it. And um, I know that his reads always had the sort of vibration where like, no matter where you put it in your mouth, um, it would vibrate in a way that it would kind of just let the oboe ring. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I think that's a good principle too. Mm-hmm. I love that. Mm-hmm. Can we hear your thoughts? Um, maybe philosophy is a big word, but um, what makes a great principal oboe or that that's a big responsibility in the orchestra and the woodwind section. And so kind of your approach to playing that role within the ensemble. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I guess I always saw myself, not always saw myself, but I kind of hoped um, and I enjoyed playing principal growing up in youth orchestra or in college and stuff like that. And I guess part of that is just because I like the spotlight and a lot and solos and also like I don't have to worry about as many low notes and second <laughs> post up. Um, but also I think there's like a sort of I like that responsibility and part of it is you have to be the the great almost the great negotiator between winds and strings literally in the middle of the orchestra mm. and especially in my position where we don't have a music director all the time and so like everyone is kind of a a conductor in their own right and we're all making those connections but especially for me kind of to engage horizontally and you know backwards with all my wind players but also connect with the strings um and kind of be that that translation point <laughs> sometimes I feel that way and um to be kind of aware I think obviously everybody has to be aware but I think principal oboe like 
to really, it's sort of the heartbeat of the orchestra. I feel like, and you know, maybe just because I'm an oboe player and obviously I go to an orchestra concert and of course I'm going to pay attention to the oboe player, but even without it, and I feel like I've heard other people say this too, but um, to just go to orchestra concert and, and listen to a piece and then when an oboe comes in, it's like they grab you. Um, it's sort of like the captain of the ship in a way if, if they're for doing it right. And maybe that's just the way I want it to be. I want to be the captain of the ship, but um, there's something about taking charge and kind of being the stronghold of the wind section and also being able to relay with the strings, um, which I don't know. It's just because that's the way we have gone about it for a while and we tune the orchestra and all this kind of thing. But um, if the oboe is supposed to be like the most like the human voice and the vocal, then it's like to be yourself as the voice of the voice of reason, the voice of the orchestra, just sort of like um, getting to set the tone. And I don't, I'm not saying that that's what I do all the time, but I, that's kind of what I would like to do that to kind of be able to be like a go-to um, for other sections and kind of like just be able to freely express myself um, from that point. But I don't know when it comes to make what makes a good principal oboist, I think it's like you convey your point of view um, and it kind of sets the tone. I feel like every time I listen to a recording, um, even if I weren't an oboe player, I feel like a big oboe solo, like in a Brahms concerto or Brahms symphony or whatever, it would just be like, they save those solos for the principal oboist to kind of, you set the tone, you, you have this expressive moment. Um, and without that, it would kind of be devoid of like the most heartwarming, <laughs> expressive parts, in my opinion. Um, that's what I like to think. Also, someone has to be like the most neurotic and like someone that everybody can laugh at because that kind of also ends up being the same thing. Too. <laughs> Could you share with us a favorite memory of a past performance? Hmm. I'm trying to think. There's been good concerts that have been like some of the best, but um, I don't know. We recently did a concert with Abel Salacho who's this South African cellist and he's amazing. Um, and also if you, I think not to, to plug, but I think you can watch that concert at some point in the near future nice. on our concert library. Um, and actually the wind players didn't get to play with him this time, but we did do a Haydn symphony um, in the, earlier in the program. And then I got to go and watch him. So it's not even really anything that I was doing, but just to see that and the level of engagement and he did singing and, and throat singing. And they also had, um, a talking drum performer and at one point culminated and you know they were people were getting um engaged not not to be married but you know they were engaged with the audience and like at one point we had an old woman come up on stage and quite literally like thrust dancing on the front of the stage <laughs> was a, i was kind of taken back in, in, a, in a happy way i was like wow like these people are really feeling something and um, it's not something you often see People aren't usually thrusting and like Beethoven symphonies, but not usually. Uh, not usually. <laughs> they should, but they that doesn't quite. So that was cool, and just to see um, again, to kind of I like things that kind of stretch the boundaries of traditional classical music concerts, symphony orchestra things. Um, to just get people to remember, like, oh yeah, we're all here experiencing something together. Like, let's have fun. Uh -huh. um, so that was really cool, and. I also, I don't know, every, every concert that I get to be a part of in SPCO, I really 
Um, I'm really grateful to be a part of it. We also did um, a couple of weeks ago, I played Haydn Symphonia Concertant um, with Faye. I don't know if he's been on the show, but he's like the most amazing bassoon player ever. Yeah. So that was cool. And he, we also did like a, an arrangement of this Prokofiev violin sonata for chamber orchestra and, and Steve Copes, our concertmaster. So we get to do a lot of stuff that's interesting programs, a lot of arrangements. And because we're a chamber orchestra, we get to be really dynamic and commission things and arrange things and do a lot of cool chamber music here and there. So um, it's kind of the job that I never like obviously expected to have this job, but it's just such a good fit for me because there's a lot of freedom in it. And I think I always knew I wanted to at least be in some place that challenged me like a high artistic level. And I am really grateful that I get to have that um, to be in a place where like all my colleagues are just amazing. And sometimes I'm like, you guys are too good. Like, can you sound worse? Cause like <laughs> my reads are bad today. And I just like, I don't know. <laughs> can someone mess up at least once? And so like, you know, be careful what you wish for. If you ask for a high level, then you also have to be at a high level all the time. And it's hard, but um, you know, it's, I, I'm very lucky. Can we now hear a memory of something funny or embarrassing or like a memorable performance for not necessarily like a sentimental reason, but like, uh, oh my gosh, you'll never believe what happened type reason? <laughs> yes. Let me think again. I feel like there's, it's always like when someone's like, oh, tell me something about yourself. And then you forget every characteristic <laughs> about you. you know? I know there's so many, but I have to, let me just think. <laughs> so, uh, well, this is not really funny for me, but a few weeks ago I had, I did have food poisoning playing a concert. Um, and it was a live stream. It was our musician appreciation concert. So if you watch that and you think I look a little green around the gills because I spent the whole day throwing up. And so I was like, Oh my God, do I call out like just a few hours before the concert or do I risk vomiting on stage in front of like everyone watching online? Um, and, so <laughs> that. and luckily, luck I found out like you wouldn't think it, but even just the uh, Mozart symphony, you know, in the last movements where you kind of just has to play sustained uh, whole notes. Bah, 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 so like that, that's like the worst stuff to play when you have food poisoning because it's just a constant engaging of your core or something and like this and I was like oh my god I wish I played a string instrument because they don't understand like having food poisoning is always miserable but when you have to play the oboe and always like I don't know engaging your abdominal muscles and like blowing air so I barely I barely made it it was awful Um, oh my god so you know did you have a bucket next to you no I didn't really have a game plan I was just like (laughs) it'll be, it'll be what it is. Um, and it was fine. I, I think like, honestly, I just hadn't had, didn't have anything left in me by that point in the night, but I think it was just, sorry, this is gross. You can edit this out. No, no, no we're keeping um, it. <laughs> but besides, so, you know, if you've ever been there, know that I feel you, it's a particular misery. And people said that I sounded good. They didn't know that I was feeling that way. So I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> if anything, I almost wish that there had been a disclaimer that I did. So people would be extra impressed. Like, wow. <laughs> he's like, this is doing good. But <laughs> um, and the only other one I can think of, I guess in, in recent memory, I think there was, uh, we went to Vail our orchestra last summer and we're going again this summer. We're really excited. Um, we went kind of at the 11th hour. Uh, Josh Belt was going and 
he was supposed to play with Academy of St. Martin in the fields and they couldn't get visas due to travel and stuff. So because of that, we got to go. Woo-hoo. Um, so that's exciting. But uh, it was like that night of the concert because it's an outdoor amphitheater and it was like 50 degrees and started pouring rain, like right. I could feel raindrops hit my back at some points when I was playing it because of the wind. And of course, like every, every second I wasn't playing, I was like clutching it to myself, just hoping my open wouldn't crack. Um, so that was kind of, but it was one of the best concerts I had participated in that point. Cause I think it was also like at a certain point in the middle of the pandemic where um, people had just had vaccines and there wasn't like variants out there that we knew of yet. So it almost, it was kind of a joyous thing. Like, Oh my gosh, we're, we're doing this again. And so that was cool. But during the encore, um, he was playing some arrangement of something and a squirrel came, ran on stage and started was like weaving in and out of our chairs. And I had been wearing wide leg pants. And so I was like, Oh no, like, you know, when you regret it, I, I was like, in that moment, I was like, Oh my God, this girl's going to run up my wide leg pants. <laughs> I thought, I don't know, you know, it's little things that you don't think about because obviously <laughs> when you're getting dressed, you're like, I look good, but is the squirrel going to run up my pants? I don't know. So at one point I think the squirrel did run under my chair, but it didn't go up my pant leg, which <gasps> I was curious about. Um, but it's funny because I just, I imagine he was up there playing and all of a sudden, because the squirrel was running around behind him. So that would be disheartening if you're playing something and then all of a sudden the audience starts laughing. <laughs> that would hurt my feelings, you know? But, <laughs> um, no, it was just because there was a squirrel and clearly he was very distressed or maybe he just, he liked classical music. I don't know. Yeah, he probably just loved it. Yeah, I guess so. He better. Um, not something that I think we have to worry about typically in our concert hall, but outdoors, it's higher. <laughs> Watch out for squirrels. Yeah. <laughs> Wear skinny pants. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what advice do you have for young musicians who aspire to have a career like yours? I think, um, I don't know, with oboe, sometimes it's very is myopic the right word you know it's it's like it's such a hard instrument to play and we have so much to learn and there is a lot of objective like rights and wrongs with like read making you just kind of want to get in the ballpark with a lot of things and um just trying so hard not to sound bad <laughs> and I feel like that's ingrained from us from the beginning like oboe sounds ugly don't do that and um then I think we it trickles down to the point where I think I've, I've taught some college lessons here and there and even when you get to a high level like at a conservatory and clearly you have skill I think I can see a lot and a lot of people still kind of a fear of sounding bad and that presents an um, actual physical like tightness in the body I can see that and and that could lead to injury too like you know when you're kind of playing in a tortured way and like wrestling with every fiber of your being with the instrument and the reeds and all that and it actually I feel like it's counterintuitive but stuff like that when when you have the skill and you know that you can do it like sometimes you just have to let go and um you know for people who are still acquiring skills and learning how to play the oboe and stuff then you know you really want to be diligent and um practice really hard and, and focus and kind of try to get like a consistent education and not um I think that helped me you know just kind of have not having conflicting opinions all the time mm-hmm. so um but at the same time, I think when you get to a certain point, particularly when you're in college or trying to figure out who you are as an, as an artist, 
then you do have to let go just a little bit and trust that um, you know what you're doing some, because then you can start to go for things and present an opinion and allow you to be more flexible um, and have more variety in your playing. Because um, I think the fear of sounding bad also artistically hinders people from, it's like, I'm like, oh, can you crescendo a little bit more? And it like increases by 0.01% or something like that. So <laughs> they also, it always seems like changes that we make in our playing are always way bigger. And I feel like even in the, I'm trying to get people to just like, when you're practicing, try to sound really ugly for a second and then dial it back two notches and then you'll kind of hit where you want to go in terms of trying to sound bigger dynamics. And so it's like, really don't be afraid to sound bad, particularly when you're practicing. Obviously understand when you're in a concert, you got to do whatever it takes to sound good in that moment. But um, trying to, obviously we want to sound good, but understand that sometimes you do have to sound bad to sound good and um, just not being afraid to try different things. And um, kind of just breaking out of that kind of like fear mindset, because then you get into the whole like, are you playing the oboe or is the oboe playing you? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and honestly, at this point, it's like sometimes I'd, I'd rather just sound bad than have to like, you know, have a breakdown over like trying to sound good. Because um, I also find sometimes when... I am struggling a lot. Like my reads are bad and nobody knows that my oboe feels out of adjustment and I'm a victim and nobody understands me. Well, and then I go in and I kind of play and I'm kind of miserable. And people say like, wow, that sounded really great. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so also it's never quite as bad as you think it is. You know, if, if you true. just try your best to express yourself, I think that goes a long, a long way. And if you're not expressing yourself and you're struggling with the oboe, then what is the point? <laughs> like you're just being miserable for what? So I, I think even if your your reads are bad and you're struggling, always just try to play with the point of view and try to make the most out of the music. Because again, like why else would you do what you're doing? Uh, why would you play this godforsaken thing if you're not gonna like have fun? <laughs> so um, yeah, just always, you wanna play accurately and when you're young, you have so much to learn. And acquire rhythm and accuracy and intonation, all this stuff. But it's never, you're never too young to start being expressive and, and being an artist. I think like if we could encourage kids to be an artist from the second they pick up their instrument, because the point of it should be to like express yourself, not to like win a prize or to like get a hundred percent on anything. Um, and I know obviously you don't want to be that student that's like fighting your teacher back on everything when, when you're 10 years old but just the there's no really way to win the oboe except for you are like doing what you believe in and kind of like playing good music you know what I mean um so that's what I would say just like don't be so scared I think um I hope that helps somebody and doesn't like derail someone <laughs> don't take it with a grain of salt I don't know because I was scared for a long time of it but now I'm not as much and it's making my life a lot better so that's what I would say Cassie thank you so much for oh, talking with us on double read dish you you're phenomenal and it was such a joy oh, to have this conversation oh thanks so much for having me I hope that someone got something out of this but I did <laughs> yeah. yeah for sure <laughs> Thank you.
We hope you enjoyed that interview with Cassie Pilgrim. Please remember to follow us on social media, rate and review if you have the time. We really appreciate it when you do. Galit, who's coming up on the next ip? We had an awesome interview with Seth Krimsky, principal bassoon of the Seattle Symphony. Jackie, let's end this nerd parade. Go make reads.